We're taking a uh, brief break this week and next week from our series in Mark. For today is Palm Sunday. We are going to celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, many of you are probably familiar with this story. Jesus comes near the Mount of Olives. He has two of his disciples and he instructs them. He says, go and fetch a donkey. And he gives them uh, very strict instructions. This is how you're going to find it. This is where you're going to go. Tell them the master needs it. Well, they go and no surprise, they find it exactly as Jesus says it's going to be. And they bring it back to which Jesus mounts the donkey and rides into Jerusalem. And as he does, you remember the scene. It's it's exciting. It's electric. People are worshiping. They're joyous. They are shouting out. They're throwing cloaks. They're putting down palm branches before King Jesus. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You can almost feel it. The energy, the electric environment, the people worshiping, the king of glory has come. And we're told in John's gospel that what's taking place here is actually a fulfillment of divine prophecy all the way back from Zechariah 9. Now with such a familiar passage it's always good for us to try to look at things from a different angle. A passage we all know, we've seen many, many times, so let's look at it from a different angle. Let's ask some some different questions. Here's the first question. Why are these people attracted to Jesus? What is it about Jesus specifically that draws people to him time and time again? What is it about Jesus that has sustained the oldest saints in this room, for, for, for all, the, all their years. And what is it about Jesus that has called the youngest of saints to sing out, is he worthy? He is. Why is the coming of the glorious King Jesus, why is that good news for, for all tribes, all tongues, all ages? Why is it good news? I'm going to give you the answer before we even begin. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the answer to the test. The reason why it's good news is because Jesus has... A beautiful, magnificent, radiant, and compassionate heart towards sinners. Over the past few weeks, we've been, uh, I've been reading a couple of books. And as I, as I tend to do, I listen to something or I'll watch a movie or I'll read a book. And it has a profound impact on my thinking. And I have to just kind of preach it out until it will go away from my mind. So this is what I'm, I'm going to do today. I've been reading two books. The first book is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And the second book is The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth by the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. And I've been devouring these books and just thinking about them and stewing on them. And I say that just to prepare you for a lot of quotes. I'm going to have a lot of quotes from them today. Our text today is the prophecy from Zechariah 9, specifically 9 through 17. Let me encourage you to read along with us today. It's going to be our springboard into the ocean of God's heart, if you will. It's going to be, I'm going to have eight veins that will lead us there, eight points that will help us dive deeper. Let's begin. Let's read together. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. An absolutely beautiful passage, an absolutely beautiful prophecy about Jesus And the first thing that strikes me right off the bat is this command in the first verse there to rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So why are the people to rejoice? Why are they to shout aloud? Because the king is coming to you. You see, this is the great condescension of Christ. This is the wonder of all wonders. The glory is king has come to us. Emmanuel, God with us. But why do we have to be told time and time again, all throughout scripture, we have to be commanded to rejoice? You would think this would come natural to us, right? Do you have to command someone to be happy? Unfortunately, we are often slow to rejoice, partly because of our own sin, partly because of the sin of the world, everything around us, the widespread evil that is around us. You might say, how can I rejoice when I just screwed up again? How can I rejoice? Jesus came, but surely surely he didn't come for me. How can I have joy in the face of war and famine and sorrow in the world? How can I rejoice? In Nehemiah uh, 8 There's this wonderful picture where they've just rebuilt the wall and they've gathered the people together and Ezra's there and he's going to read from the book of the law. And everyone's gathered around and it starts out as this really wonderful thing and the people, it says, are shouting, Amen, brother, Amen. Yeah, keep it going, keep reading, this is wonderful. And then all of a sudden it turns to them where they're weeping. And now nobody's joyous, nobody's happy. They're all just crying and sobbing. And Ezra and Nehemiah, the priests, they have to actually calm the people down. What are you guys doing? This is good. The walls are back. We're we're reading the Lord's law. But because they're convicted of their sin. And in Nehemiah 8.10, it says this, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, these people are crushed by the weight and the burden of the law, and rightly so. For who can ascend the Lord's holy hill? Who is worthy to open the scroll? We have unclean lips, and we dwell among people with unclean lips. Listen to the words of the old hymn. Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Sinners believe it, sinners receive it. You see, Christ's coming as the new Adam means that what went wrong 
back in Eden, because it all comes back to Eden, is now made right. That fellowship that Adam and Eve had when they walked with God in the garden, Jesus has come to put us back into that perfect relationship with God. Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Though our sins are like scarlet, Christ says, I will make them white as snow. Therefore, rejoice. The king has come. Go to him. Fly to him. Run to him. Repent of your sins. Be healed. And you see, in doing so, you will sync up with Christ's joy. And the Bible says, and the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Christ's joy will now be your strength. Thomas Goodwin writes, he says, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the head of the body delights in taking care of the rest of the body. The husband rejoices in pleasing and taking care of his wife. He draws near to us so that our joy and his joy might be made manifest in one another. Not that there is anything lacking in Jesus, but that his joy and his glory now overflows out of an abundance to the rest of the world as he shows us grace and mercy. Romans 5.20, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Dane Ortland writes, when you or I come to Christ with tears, hurts, worries, anguish, and with repentance, we are going with the flow of Christ's heart, not against it. His desire is that we should come in our weakness so that he might fill us up. Christ is not drained by our coming to him. He is the ever-flowing fountain of life. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we uh, continue to think about this joy, what was the joy set before Jesus Christ? It was the joy of him seeing his people redeemed. It was the joy of seeing his bride forgiven. And being brought near into perfect union with him. It was the joy of his, of his glory shining forth. Of him pleasing the Father. Of taking up his eternal throne. This is the joy of his high priestly atoning work reaching its consummation. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I love that picture that, that the Lord is with us. Jesus is with us. He's, he's the loudest singer in this room. And if we could, in the darkest hour of our souls, saturate our hearts in that truth, that Jesus is singing over you, that the clear voice of Christ is ringing out loudly over you, what happiness would we have? What joy would that bring us? Beloved, he's singing even now. The gospel melody is an invitation to bind yourself to his deeper joy. 
to bind yourself to the deeper joy that transcends all human understandings of joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, the joy of Christ. Our second vein into God's heart today, Jesus the King, he delights to save. Listen to this. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Now, when we talk about salvation, we must inevitably ask, salvation from what? What do we need saving from? You know, you might hear somebody say, what do I need, what do I need Jesus for? What do I need to be saved from? I'm fine. I'm doing okay. You could say sin. We, do we need to be saved from sin? Yes. Ourselves? Yes. The world? The devil? Yes. Yes. Ultimately, when the Bible talks about salvation, though, it's talking about sinners needing saving from the wrath of God towards sin. Justice must be done. Crimes must be paid for. Someone has to take the punishment for our sin. You see, it's this simple truth that led the pastor Paul Tripp. Some of you may be familiar with Paul Tripp. He said this. He said, the wrath of God is the hope of mankind. He's going to explain. He explains, God's anger is the anger of grace. It isn't the violent anger of unbridled and unrighteous fury. God's anger always works to right what's been wrong. That's what grace does. This gracious anger has two sides to it, justice and mercy. In the gracious anger of justice, God works to punish wrong, but he does even more. God isn't merely satisfied with punishing wrong. His hunger for right is so strong that he will not relent until wrong has been completely destroyed. He will not rest until evil is no more and justice and righteousness reign forever and ever. Amen. And if we look at the Bible, where do we see in all of human history, where do we see all of God's anger coalescing in history? We see it at the cross. And you see it's at the cross where justice and mercy kiss. Jesus bears the full weight of the entire justice of God's anger for us. He pays the penalty for our sin, the sin that, was, that, that required a punishment. He pays in our place. He purchases our forgiveness. And on the cross, Jesus became the instrument of God's merciful anger that every single sinner in here desperately needed. We needed a substitute. The people cry out, Hosanna, please save us. And I can almost imagine the smile of Jesus on that donkey as he says, that's exactly what I came to do. That's exactly what I came to do. I came to save the people. Righteous and having salvation is he. The third vein, Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly. Verse 9, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, this is the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus describes to us his own heart. And it's found in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Many of you will know it. Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Now, when we talk about the heart, what we're really talking about is the motivation headquarters of a person. We're not actually talking about a, you know, a, a real heart. We're talking about what motivates you. What, where's, what's your innermost desire? And if we want to use biblical language, we have to talk about bowels. Because the Bible constantly talks about the, the moving of our bowels, our guts, is what motivates us. What Jesus tells us is that what is most true of him in his innermost guts is that he is gentle and lowly. You see, that's good news. This means that Jesus is not a trigger-happy, cantankerous king. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger. It's not a closed fist. It's open arms to receive This means Jesus is accessible. You can call him at all hours of the night. He's not going to be bothered by you. He wants you to come. He invites you to come. Come to me all who labor and are weary. But you see, to be labored and weary implies some sort of weakness. It means we're tired. It means we're not perfect. And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. For it is your very burden that qualifies you to come to me in the first place. His rest is a gift. It's not a transaction. This is who Jesus truly and really is to all those who come to him in repentance. He is gentle and lowly. Goodwin writes, men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ, but he tells them his disposition here by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him all the more. We are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners. He's not able to bear them. No, Jesus says, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and my temper. In Matthew 11, at the very end, he also speaks of his yoke. He says, uh, take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy and light. And the yoke, if you didn't know, is a heavy bar that they would lay on oxen to force them to pull farm equipment, right? This is, this is a heavy iron bar. Well, you're thinking of yoke that way. But Jesus here is using a different word. The word translated as, as easy is actually translated as kind. And so Jesus is saying, my yoke is a yoke of kindness, of gentleness. My yoke is not heavy. It's a buoy. My yoke is helium. For your deflated balloons. And if you're worried about bearing the weight alone, I'm with you even to the end of the age, he says. And I'm with you. I'm yoked with you. You see, this is what makes the people rejoice at the coming of Christ the King. Because he's never afraid to yoke himself with the lowly. Jesus answers the question to our deepest fears that all of us have had at one point or another about God. When God comes to earth... Will he hold his nose around me? Will he be repelled by my stench? Will God recoil when he touches me? And Jesus says, no, my very heart is to be your friend, to embrace sinners. I have compassion for you. Listen to the scripture, Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 20, 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. 
Again, the Greek word for compassion is the same in all these texts, and it refers most literally to the bowels or the guts of a person. The theologian Richard Sibbs writes, When Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. The works of grace and mercy in Christ, they come from his bowels first. Whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy And he did it inwardly from his own heart. Our fourth vein, Jesus brings peace. Verse 12, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, what does this tell us? It tells us that Christ's rule is a global one. And we know this because every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And through his eternal rule and victory, he's going to bring about everlasting peace. Now, he tasks us in the Great Commission right before he leaves. He tasks us with the proclamation of this victory. Christ has already won the battle. And now our job in the Great Commission is to evangelize and to tell people, hey, the victory has been won. It's finished. The king is seated on his throne. Come into the camp. Come into the camp. He's won. And he's coming again. You see, Christ's heart is a wildfire of blazing love. And it starts and it goes all throughout the world. And we've seen this in missionaries who go and they die glorious gospel deaths and from their death from their mission it sparks a wildfire that goes forth into all these nations this is an eternal victory it means peace with god it means peace with man this is christ's global rule and it's glorious our fifth vein is that jesus brings freedom verse 11 as for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you i will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit Now, we talked briefly earlier about being saved from the wrath of God. And sometimes we have this idea, or some people can have the idea, that God the Father and God the Son are at odds with each other. That the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, and the Old Testament God is all wrath and angry and mean. But that Jesus, you know, he's a good guy. He's grace and truth. And if you are uh, an avid Bible reader, you know that couldn't be farther from the truth could not be farther from the truth. At the level of legal acquittal, the father had to be placated. There had to be punishment for the crime. However, both father, son, and spirit were united in that plan of redemption all the way from eternity past. Now, we call this the covenant of redemption. Theologian Louis Burkhoff, he describes it as this. He says, this is the agreement between the father giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect, and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father had given him. So God, through Zechariah, says, he says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, the blood ultimately of Jesus, I will set your prisoners free. This is, again, part of Christ's high priestly atoning work. There's no better place to read about this than Hebrews. So we're going to be in Hebrews for a hot minute here. Listen to Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And Hebrews 7.25 fleshes it out even more. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Now you may say, what is intercession? What does that mean? Dane Orland writes, Christ's intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is now the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the intercession of Christ is his heart connecting our heart to the Father's heart. He is the mediator, the once and for all mediator between God and man that we need. John Calvin says, Jesus turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. Do you see that? The righteous for the unrighteous. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. He fills with grace and kindness the throne that for miserable sinners would otherwise have been filled with dread. You see, the fall has corrupted our minds and our bodies and everything about us to the point where we often think dark thoughts about God the Father. We often have these dark thoughts about Jesus Christ. And Satan loves nothing more than for us to wallow and stew in those lies. You see, he wants us to believe that in Christ there is condemnation. But the Bible says in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. Our eternal verdict is not guilty if you belong to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to belabor this point, but I really want to hammer this home. I got an email uh, like two or three months ago from somebody who doesn't even go to our church, but who had been listening to our sermons. And she said, "I, I have a problem because I feel like God really hates me. And I don't know you, and I don't know why I'm emailing you, but I just feel like God hates me. And I said... Well, you know, keep listening. God doesn't, if you're in Christ, God does not hate you. But we've all probably thought this at one point. Does God hate me? Is God angry with me? Could God really love me? Listen to what Paul says about God the Father in 2 Corinthians 1, 3. He says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. There's another example in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses is talking with God. He's about to go up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And he says, he makes an audacious request, audacious request of Jesus. He says, of God, he says, can I see your glory? And God says, okay, but you have to hide in that cleft and you can only see my back. If you see my face, you're gone, (laughs) You're, you're done. And Moses says, okay, okay. So he hides in the cleft of the rock, and now God is going to declare something about himself. He's going to show Moses his glory. Now listen to what he says, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who, all, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children, to the third 
and fourth generation. Now, this is truly astounding because this is God's own declaration of who he is. Merciful and gracious. Those are the first words out of his mouth when he wants to describe, he wants to show Moses his glory. Merciful, gracious. And elsewhere we find in the Bible that he's patient with us. He's long-suffering with us. He's slow to anger. The Bible says he does not delight in the death of the wicked. Ortland writes, his anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up. Divine anger is spring-loaded. No, no, no. Divine mercy is slow to build. No, it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Steadfast love, God says, to thousands of generations, but judgment to the third and fourth. Now, we have to stop here for a second because we know God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. I'm speaking about those who are in Christ. Listen to the love. Thousands of generations. But his wrath towards the iniquity of the unrighteous third and fourth. Do you see the beauty of this? And if you are not a believer today, I want you to be, I want you to listen so clearly to this. Because Christ is here with open arms to receive you. He is waiting to receive you, to give you his yoke of kindness. Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father, that'll be enough. Jesus, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, Philip, have you been with me so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians tells us he's the very image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so what what we're learning here is that Jesus is the living, breathing, pulsating heart of God. He is love covered over in flesh, as John Bunyan would say. And if you're in Christ, then the triune everlasting God of all creation says, I will eternally be your God. He says, you are my treasured possession. You are the apple of my eye. Those who the sun sets free are free Indeed, our sixth vein, Jesus brings restoration, and we're getting close to the end. Verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will restore you to double. You see the solution time and time again in the Old Testament. You had to get rid of sin. What did you do? Did you go take a bath? No. There had to be blood. There had to be sacrifice. Blood atonement was needed. And that's because we aren't just dirty on the outside. We are guilty on the inside. And what we've seen in our series through the Gospel of Mark thus far, we're still at the beginning. But Jesus comes to bring restoration to his creation. Jesus, when he touches a sinner, it's not him that becomes dirty. It's the sinner that becomes clean. When he restores creation back to health, he's kicking out demons. He's booting them to the curb. He's taking back his creation. He heals the sick and the plague, and he brings restoration to all things. In Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And the same Jesus who touched the lepers is still doing that today. He's still reaching down into our leprous hearts, our hearts of stone, and making us new. 
through Jesus, through his spirit, Christ envelops his people closer than any physical embrace ever could. And the reason why he's able to restore and save us so completely is again found in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Goodwin wrote that this text was like a sinner. We could pl- if we could place our head on the chest of Christ and hear his heartbeat, here it is. This is the heartbeat of Christ towards you. The passage says that it is precisely in our weakness, precisely in our brokenness that Jesus sympathizes is with us. There's no pain, there's no trial, there's no temptation that you will experience in this life that will be solely unique to you. Because Jesus knows you intimately. He knows your weakness. And listen to how the passage ends. Verse 16, let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, true restoration is found at the throne of grace from the Father of mercies. We move from weakness to confidence. Seventh vein, Jesus makes us beautiful. This is verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, what is it about God's glory that draws us in and causes us to conquer our sins and makes us radiant people? This is the question we're asking. What is it about Jesus? Is it the sheer size of God, a consideration of the immensity of the universe and thus the creator? Is it a sense of God's transcendent greatness that pulls us toward him? No, it is the loveliness of his heart. Now, this is the same pastor who is famous for the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. (laughs) Because he wasn't afraid to balance this. God's justice with his mercy. And it is a sight of the divine beauty of Christ now, the Christ's love that compels men and women to come to him. His is the voice that invites us into the cool meadow of God's love. There's no love on earth that is as wonderful as as that which exists in the heart of Christ towards his bride. His love, his choosing of us, his cleansing, is what makes us shine like jewels of a crown. Now, where again does this all take place? Where does this coalesce in human history? At the cross. Now, I want you to imagine just my sin, okay? You have to imagine, well, imagine your sin, not my sin. Imagine your sin. Your whole lifetime of sinning, every single word you've said, every single deed you've done, every, every bad thing you've ever done, coalesced into a little bullet. And that bullet fired at Christ on the cross. What pain could you imagine he felt? And now imagine all the sins of all the saints, the millions of saints throughout time, compiled into an atomic bomb of wrath-bearing, dumped upon Jesus Christ On the cross. And you see, that's incarnate beauty. That is beauty itself being uglified so that we hideous ones might be made beautiful. And the Bible says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Our eighth and final vein, the final one, Jesus himself is beautiful. 
Verse 17, for how, how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Here's trivia for the, the kids, the catechism kids. You ready? What is man's chief end? To glorify God and do what? Enjoy him forever. So what's our application for today then? It's like me asking you, how do you apply the Grand Canyon to your life? How do you apply the Aurora Borealis to your everyday work week? (laughs) Well, you bathe in it. You drink in the beauty. You let it shape you. You let it change you. You are compelled by the love of Christ. You are moved by it because he has forgiven you. Now you can forgive others because it is finished. You can get off the treadmill of works. God loves you completely. And you bring glory to God by enjoying him. And by glorifying him, you enjoy him even more. Again, Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, the creation of the whole world seems to have been especially for this end. That the eternal son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature. And to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth All that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart. And that in this way, God might be glorified. The whole point of creation was that Christ might pour his love and condescend to us and pour out his grace and mercy upon us. Do you know that in all of scripture, there's only one place, only one place where it says that God is rich in something. Now, God, of course, owns everything. But God says this in Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Would you take that? Uh, If you don't hear anything else, hear that today. God is rich in mercy towards his saints. God is rich in mercy towards those who come to him. He has an invincible love. Christ's love never decays, it never rots, it cannot rust. 2 Corinthians 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Can the head remove itself from the body? Will the husband who died for the bride cast her out of the house? Can your adoption papers signed in the very blood of Christ himself ever be torn up? The answer is No, never to deny you would be to deny himself. And this is beauty. This is high beauty. This is everlasting beauty. This is immeasurable riches, immeasurable kindness, immeasurable goodness. Run to him. Run to him. Repent of your sins. Repent of your shallow, kiddie pool view of God's love for you. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. He is the father of mercies. He's waiting for you. Why? Why should we run to him? Because as Thomas Goodwin says, if you knew Christ's heart, you would. Let's pray.